Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we started to talk about Old Norse religion. We covered what we know, or at least think we know, about sacrifices, ceremonies and magic in pre-Christian Scandinavian society. As promised, today's episode is going to be all about Old Norse mythology. Stories of the Old Norse gods have fascinated people throughout the ages. Even today, almost a thousand years after the Scandinavians abandoned the old gods for Christianity, Norse mythology with all its gods, goddesses, heroes, giants, elves, dwarfs and other creatures continue to captivate new generations of readers. Returning to the Prose Edda, and especially the section of that book called Gilfaginning, or The Tricking of Gilfi, We'll explore the major themes in this treasure trove of myths. We'll have a look at the creation of the world, we'll get a tour of that world, or rather nine worlds, and we'll be introduced to some of the most important gods. So, let's crack on, shall we? Episode 19, Old Norse Mythology. As I've mentioned a few times already in the last couple of episodes, we don't really have any contemporary written sources relating to the Old Norse myths. We do have runestones with depictions of what are clearly mythological scenes, but none of the surviving texts were written before the 12th century, so it's impossible to ascertain to what degree these texts reflect an authentic and complete corpus of myths. The lack of contemporary sources from the inside, that is, from the people who actually practiced the Old Norse religion, means that we can't be sure that the myths we know today are exactly the same as the myths the ancient Scandinavians passed down from generation to generation. It also means that we don't know if there are vital parts of the Old Norse mythology that have been lost to us. A god like Ullr, for for example, appears in none of the myths that we still know of today. Despite this, He must have been a very important deity to the pre-Christian Scandinavians, since there are so many place names all over Scandinavia carrying his name. In other words, we have no way of knowing if the myths that we are familiar with today are merely a small part of all the myths and legends the Vikings told each other. The first surviving written account that mentions the Norse myths in any form is actually not Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda, but Gesta Danorum, or The Deeds of the Danes. This patriotic, albeit not particularly trustworthy, account of Danish history was written in the 12th century by a man called Saxogrammaticus. It's not clear exactly when the chronicle was finished, but it can't have been before 1208, because Saxogrammaticus mentions the Danish conquest of the areas north of the river Elbe that occurred in that year. The Eddas may not have been the first, but they are without any doubt the most important sources we have to Norse mythology. I only mentioned the Poetic Edda in passing in episode 17, that dealt with sagas and runes. This Edda, not to be confused with Snorri's Edda, is a compilation of poems that survives in a single copy, the so-called Codex Regis, or Book of Kings. It was discovered in Iceland in 1643, and since the island was under Danish control at the time, the book was taken to Copenhagen and presented as a gift to King Christian IV. This is how the book got its name. It remained in the Royal Library in the Danish capital until 1971, when it was returned to the by then independent Iceland. Since the 19th century, when the national romanticism became fashionable in Europe, 
The poetic Edda has influenced many Scandinavian authors with its terse, clear and unadorned language. When the book was discovered in the 17th century, it was already several hundred years old. No one knows for sure when it was written, but analyses of the manuscript itself indicate that it was written down sometime around the year 1270 or so. So in other words, about half a century after the prose Edda. Based on linguistic analysis, it is, however, assumed that the poems in the Poetic Edda are significantly older than the Codex Regius. The poems have most likely been passed on orally from generation to generation, which makes it difficult to pinpoint when they were first composed, if they were indeed composed at the same time at all. In fact, since they are written in different individual styles, it seems very likely that there were several authors possibly writing over several years, if not generations. But there are some indications that help us to pinpoint parts of the Poetic Edda in time. For instance, there's a section that was supposedly composed in Greenland. At least this bit must have been written after that island was discovered in the, in the 980s. Some scholars have tried to use flora, fauna and geography that appear in the Poetic Edda to clarify when it was written. For instance, since there are no wolves on Iceland, it has been argued that all poems mentioning wolves were written somewhere in Scandinavia before Iceland was settled around the year 870. The problem with this theory is that it's highly unlikely that the settlers on Iceland would have forgotten all about wolves, a species that was common in the Scandinavian countries where they came from. So of course they could have written about wolves even though they didn't have any on Iceland. Similarly, it has been claimed that the parts of the Edda describing earthquakes can't have been penned before the discovery of Iceland, since the rest of Scandinavia is rather stable, far away from any tectonic fault lines that cause tremors in the earth. And there's some logic to that argument. Iceland is an extremely seism seismologically active part of the world and can surely have inspired depictions of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions found in the Poetic Edda. But, on the other hand, there are also depictions of monsters devouring the sun and the moon, the firmament breaking open and giants swarming out of the cracks to destroy the world, and I'm hard-pressed to believe that whoever wrote the Eddas had experienced anything of that nature. And if you can imagine that, surely you can imagine the earth shaking violently without having experienced any actual earthquake. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that establishing when the Poetic Edda was written based on its contents alone doesn't provide solid evidence in any direction. Whenever it was compiled, the best known part of the Poetic Edda today is Hovamol, the sayings of the High One. It's compiled of a series of poems and it claims to be composed by Odin himself, thus the name. The text is full of aphorisms and proverbs, mainly in the form of advice on how to behave and to live one's life. A lot of it deals with hospitality, a central aspect to Viking Age Scandinavian life. A typical example goes like this. A guest needs giving water, fine towels and friendliness, a cheerful word, a chance to speak, kindness and concern. But at the same time, the author of Havamal isn't oblivious to the risks of inviting a stranger into one's house. Another piece of advice goes, Giver of the feast, your guest is here. Where shall he sit? Fast temper grows in a far seat. Prompt him not to prove his mettle. 
Guests are also warned about potential dangers at a stranger's table. The cautious guest who comes to the table speaks sparingly, listens with ears, learns with eyes. Such is the seeker of knowledge. Judging by today's standards, the Hovamol can appear a little too realistic to serve as an ethical guideline. It can even seem crass at times with advice like this. The unwise man imagines a smiling face a friend, and repay laughter with laughter again, but betrayal with treachery. It certainly differs from modern systems of ethics when it comes to violence. Wake early if you want another man's life or land, or never walk away from home without your axe and sword. You can't feel a battle in your bones or foresee a fight. And uh, only fools hope to live forever by escaping enemies. Age promises no peace, though the spear spares them. But nonetheless, Hovamol contains quite a few pearls of wisdom that are relatable also today, such as Better burden carries no one than much wisdom. Or a bad friend is far away, though his cottage is close. Or, often it is best for the unwise man to sit in silence. His ignorance goes unnoticed unless he tells too much. It's the ill fortune of unwise men that they cannot keep silent. Arguably, the most famous aphorism in the Hovamol reminds the reader to guard his honor and good name, and it goes like this. Cattle die, kinsmen die, you yourself die. I know one thing that never dies, the judgment of a dead man's life. Much of the lore about Odin, the king of the gods, known to us today, is found in the Hovamol, a section that deals with love and the character of women, who are described rather unflatteringly as faithless, also contains accounts of Odin's romantic conquests, called Odin's Examples, or Odin's Love Quests. The section Runatal, or Odin's Runesong, relates the myth about how Odin hangs himself for nine days and nine nights in order to understand the mysteries of the runes. Following Runatal is a section describing several magic songs, or chants, used in the practice of rune magic. Unfortunately, the songs themselves are not quoted, merely their purpose and supposed effect. Beside Gesta the Norum and the Poetic Edda, the Prose Edda, written by Snorri Sturluson, is another major source of knowledge about Norse mythology and Scandinavian pre-Christian religion. But we've talked about it at length before, so I won't dwell on it too much today. If you missed it, or have forgotten about it already, feel free to go back and listen to episode 17, Sagas and Runes. Both Saxo Grammaticus and Snorri Sturluson were Christians, and they attempt to explain the Old Norse religion by claiming that the gods were actually humans. We've already discussed how Snorri does this by saying that they were kings of yore, whose memory was honored and that later turned into worship over the centuries. Saxo, the ardent Danish patriot that he was, claimed that Odin basically was a con man. He fooled everyone he was a god so that they would worship him. He settled in Uppsala in Sweden because the locals there were more gullible than in Saxo's own Denmark. As mentioned above, the first book in the Prose Edda by Snorri Sturluson is called Gulfaginning, or The Tricking of Gulfi. It serves as a sort of frame story, and through this literary device, Snorri introduces his readers to the main points of Old Norse cosmology. 
The trick that Gilfi falls for can either be seen as the main storyline, where, spoiler alert, the beautiful Gifion fools him, but it can also be understood as Odin's using of magic tricks to make Gilfi worship him and the other Asir as gods. That was, after all, Snorri's point. The ancient Scandinavians had started to worship their ancestors as gods by mistake. Gilfaginning introduces us to Gilfi, king of Sweden. Gilfi loved every last inch of his realm and was ready to defend it against any attacker. One day, a mysterious woman appeared in Gilfi's capital. She rode in a magnificent wagon with exquisite woodwork and a finely embroidered cloth covering her from the sun. The wagon was drawn by four oxen, larger and stronger than any animals in Gilfi's kingdom. The woman was beautiful, quite possibly the most beautiful woman the king had ever seen in his life. But she was also unlike all other women King Gilfi had ever seen before. Her skin wasn't pale as milk, but rather tanned. Her eyes weren't blue as the sky, but brown. Her hair wasn't golden blonde, but dark, almost black. Anyone with the least bit of knowledge of fairy tale tropes should have heard the alarm bells ringing loud and clear at this point. But Gilfi clearly had no such knowledge because he immediately called for her and invited her to stay at his castle and dine in his hall. She accepted the invitation and introduced herself simply and modestly as Gifion. Modestly because she was actually a goddess, but that that last bit she failed to mention to the besotted king. Gilfi offered her lavish gifts of gold and precious stones, fine silk fabric and other luxury items. Gifion demurred and said she really only wanted a small plot of land where she could eke out a modest existence. Live the simple life in this beautiful place. Gilfi jumped at the opportunity to present her with a gift that she'd actually accept and that he hoped would keep her in close proximity permanently. So he offered her all the land she could circumvent with a plough and her four oxen in one day and one night. Gifion gladly accepted and thanked the king profusely for his unexpected generosity. The next day, early in the morning, Gifion set out with a plough and her oxen. Gilfi hadn't even woken up yet. If he had, he would have been worried by what he would have seen. Gifion and her oxen set off at a brisk pace, ploughing away as they went. The oxen were so quick that they had soon disappeared over the horizon, so when the king eventually got out of bed, the beautiful Gifion was nowhere to be seen. Only the deep and long furrow left behind her by her plough indicated in which direction she had gone. It's not entirely clear when Gilfi started to get worried, but if it hadn't happened before, it surely must have occurred when he was awoken the following morning, early, before daybreak, because the ground under his hall was shaking. In the distance, he could hear a roaring sound approaching. Gifion was back. She had been ploughing all day and all night, and as she completed her furrow, the sun rose. Gifion then tied her oxen to the piece of land inside the furrow and let her whip crack over their backs. The animals started to drag the whole chunk of land away out to sea. Gilfi was powerless to stop her. He could only watch as she and her oxen pulled away with a sizable piece of his kingdom in tow. What no army could do, this woman had done single-handedly. She had robbed King Gilfi of a large portion of his kingdom. Gifion transported this land south 
through the Baltic Sea until she reached a spot in the south where she left the land in the middle of the sea. The island that was created was therefore called Sealand or Zealand in the contemporary English version. Today it's a part of Denmark and the Danish capital of Copenhagen is situated on this island. Next time you go there, you should definitely check out the Gefjom Fountain between the Little Mermaid and the Royal Palace of Amalienborg. King Gilfi was furious but couldn't do anything about it. The land was lost to him and he couldn't punish Gefjon even if he'd wanted to because she disappeared from Midgard, the land of the humans. It turned out that the four oxen were no ordinary animals but in fact her sons with a giant and they had returned to Jotunheim, the land of the giants. Even though he couldn't get his land back, Gylfi still wanted revenge, compensation, something, so he set out to find Gefjon. He suspected that she was in fact related to the gods, so he went to Asgard, the world of the gods. Gylfi disguised himself as a poor wanderer and called himself Gangleri, thinking that this would fool the gods. After a long and arduous journey, Gylfi reached his goal. He was brought to a great hall where he was presented to three men sitting on three thrones. Their names were High, Justice High and Third. When asked about what he wanted, Gilfi said he was looking for knowledge and wisdom. He started to ask questions and the three men told him how the world had been created, how we would one day come to an end, about the gods and other things of general interest. Gilfi got to hear the answers to all the great questions but didn't get an answer to the one question that made him set out on his journey to begin with. Who was Gefjon? As soon as he finally summoned the courage to ask about her, a deafening thunder was heard and the startled king was transported out of Asgard. When Gylfi came to again, he found himself back in the realm of men. He didn't have many other options than returning to what was left of his beloved kingdom. When he returned home, he noticed that almost no time had passed but people at the same time didn't seem to remember the dramatic loss of land that Gefion stole from them. The hole left behind had filled with water and become a large lake. People were all behaving like that lake had been there forever. Gilfi decided to just make peace with the fact that the land Gefion had taken was gone for good. But on his journey he'd gained something else of immense value and he set out sharing all the stories he'd been told in Asgard. One of these stories was the description of how the world was created. According to the Old Norse myth of creation, in the beginning there was nothing at all, only emptiness. This emptiness was called Ginnungagap, and it was a huge, unlimited void. Out of this void rose the two primordial worlds, Muspelheim and Niflheim, located at the opposite ends of Ginnungagap, because apparently the huge, unlimited void had ends. Muspelheim was the world of fire in the south, and Niflheim was the world of ice in the north. Muspelheim was ruled by Surt, the mightiest of the fire giants, with his flaming sword. Surt was there in the beginning, and he would exist until the end of the world. He guarded the gate into Muspelheim, and didn't let anyone in, not even the gods could enter. Surt's hair was made of fire, and, and lava streamed down his deformed body. In contrast, Niflheim was frozen, full of ice and snow. Storms raged there permanently. In the middle of Niflheim was an enormous well, the source of twelve rivers. This well was called Kvergelmir, and when the waters in the twelve rivers poured out into Niflheim, they froze to enormous glaciers. These glaciers 
a wall of ice that covered larger and larger parts of the universe, spread southward in the direction of Muspelheim. After eons of time, the fire from Muspelheim in the south and the ice from Niflheim in the north met. When the ice and fire crashed into each other, there was an enormous explosion and some frozen poisonous ice melted. This was the unlikely inception of life. Out of the bubbling, boiling water and clay, a giant emerged, later called Ymir by his descendants, the ice giants. Ymir slept for a long time and started to sweat. A man and woman grew out of his sweaty armpits and his feet mated and gave birth to a son with six heads. The ice giants are descendants of all these creatures. But not all ice in Niflheim was unpleasant and poisonous as the one that Ymir was born from. Out of some pure ice that melted in the fire from Muspelheim, a mighty cow was created. From this cow's udders streamed four rivers of milk, and the giant Ymir drank this milk. The ice giants called the cow Odumla. She licked the continents of ice around her, and their salty taste pleased her. She continued to lick the ice, and that way she sculpted a man. The first day she created his hair with her, with her tongue, the next day his head, and the third day his whole body. The gods called this man Buri, and he was their ancestor. Their big, strong, and beautiful ancestor. Buri had a son called Bur, and Bur, in turn, had three sons with Bestla, the daughter of the giant Boltorn. These three sons were named Odin, Vile, and Ve. But these weren't the only creatures that emerged from the clash between ice and fire. There were numerous others, some good and others evil, depending on the quality of the ice they were born from. The evil ones were created from poisonous ice, and the good ones from pure clean ice. The good and the evil soon started feuding, and Odin, Vila, and Ve killed Ymir. So much blood streamed forth from Ymir's dead body that it drowned his whole family, with the exception of his youngest son, Bergelmir, and his wife. Bergelmir managed to swim away through the blood, dragging his wife by the hair. That way, they survived and continued the line of the ice giants. Odin and his brothers, they brought Ymir's dead body to the middle of Ginnungagap. The blood that continued to stream from his body formed the oceans, rivers, lakes and all other bodies of water in the world. Odin, Vila and Ve then worked Ymir's body like clay and created the world from it. They crushed his bones and made mountains from them. His toes and teeth became rocky coastlines. Ymir's hair became trees and bushes. Spontaneously, like worms from a regular corpse, the race of dwarfs grew out of Ymir's flesh. The next stage was the creation of heaven. Odin, Vila, and Ve took Ymir's skull and placed it over the world as a cupola. They then commanded four of these dwarves that had grown out of the flesh to stand in the four corners of the world and hold up the skull for all eternity, thus fixing the heaven in its place. These four dwarves were called North, East, South, and West. Their names should give you an idea as to where they were positioned. Odin and his brothers thought it was a little dark and gloomy inside Ymir's skull, so they took some burning coals that spewed forth from Muspelheim and placed them on the inside of the skull, creating the stars. Then Odin commanded one of the sons of Bergelmir to take the shape of an eagle and stand at the end of the world, continuously flapping his wings, thus creating the wind. After that was achieved, 
Odin, Vila and Ve took Ymir's brain and threw it into the wind, creating the clouds. Finally, Odin, Vila and Ve started to divide up the world under the newly formed sky. They gave the surviving giants a large piece of land at the end of the sea. They called that land Jotunheim, home of the giants. One of the first giants to settle in Jotunheim was called Nor. He had a beautiful and strong-willed daughter called Nat, or Night. Nat looked very exotic with a dark complexion and black hair. Many men wanted her, and she married three times. With her first husband, she had a son called Aud, or Space. Nat soon left her first husband and remarried. Her second husband is known only by the name The Second. No one knows for sure who he was, but he probably was a prominent god who was too embarrassed to admit that he'd married a giantess. Nat had a daughter called Jord, or Earth, with him. And uh, since Odin also has a daughter called Jord, wagging tongues would have you believe that he might have been Nat's second husband. Nat's third husband was called Delling, or Dawn, and with him she had a son called Dag, or Day. Like his father, Dag was blonde and very handsome. The gods gave Nat and her son Dag the task of riding through the universe once every day, dividing time into dark and light periods in order to give the world fixed times for work and rest. Nat rides her horse Rimfaxi, and the spit from her horse falls on the ground and creates dew. She's followed by Dag on his horse, Skinfaxi. To make the distinction between day and night even clearer, the gods also took the sun and the moon and put them in orbit over the world. Before that, they had been floating around arbitrarily in the sky after being formed in the flames of Muspelheim. Someone needed to steer these celestial bodies, so the gods took the children of a giant called Mundilfari, whom they didn't like much. Conveniently enough, the kids were called Sun and Moon, so it was easy to decide who got to steer the sun and who got to steer the moon. Since the moon not only needed to be guided through the sky, but also had to grow and shrink every day, moon couldn't handle it alone. In order to get help, he kidnapped two children from Earth, a boy called Yuki and his sister Bil. Their task would be to make sure that the moon appeared to wax and wane with the use of a veil. To make sure that sun and moon would not abandon their tasks, the gods released two giant wolves that chased after them, trying to devour them. According to the myths, the sun and the moon will hurry across the sky for all eternity, but at the end of time, the wolves will finally catch up and destroy them. Then, the heavens will fill with blood and everything will sink into darkness. The first humans were created out of two timber logs Odin, Vila and Ve found while strolling along a beach. Odin created a woman out of a log that came from an elm tree and a man from the log of an ash tree. Vile gave the man and the woman the five senses, and Ve gave him the ability to talk and reason. Odin and his brothers called the man Ask, because that means ash, and the woman Embla, Elm. Then the gods gave Ask and Embla a world in the middle of creation to live in. They called this world Midgord, which basically, basically means Middle Earth. To protect them from giants and other unpleasant creatures, they took the eyebrows that had been left over after dismembering Ymir and used them to build a high protective wall encircling Midgord. But Midgord wasn't the only world. In fact, there were no fewer than nine different worlds, all arranged in an enormous ash tree called Yggdrasil. 
Midgord, the realm of humans, was situated in the middle of the tree. Above it were Asgord and Vanaheim. Asgord was the home of the Aesir, that is, the gods, and Vanaheim was the world of another form of gods, generally of slightly lesser power and significance. We don't know a whole lot about these Vanir, except that they waged a war against the Asir at some point, but lost. As a part of the peace treaty, the Vanir had to hand over hostages to the Asir, and as a guarantee that they would stick to the peace agreement. This was common practice among the Viking Age Scandinavians, so they probably thought it made perfect sense that their gods would do the same. These hostages included Njord, the god of the sea, and his two children, the enormously popular Frey and Freya, the gods of prosperity, fertility, love and beauty. As mentioned before, giants lived in Jotunheim, the fire giants in Muspelheim, and ice giants in Niflheim. There were also separate worlds for dwarves and the elves. Beneath all these worlds was the world of the dead, a dark, damp and cold place called Hel, ruled by a queen of the queen of the dead, conveniently enough also named Hel. The Vikings believed that warriors who fell in battle were collected by the Valkyries and brought to Valhalla, Odin's great hall in Asgard. There, they would spend eternity fighting and killing each other in large battles every day, and at sunset the fallen would rise again healed. They would then return to Valhalla and feast on pork and ale the whole night through, until it was time to go out and fight again the next morning. But those who didn't fall in battle didn't get to enjoy this glorious afterlife. Instead, they were sent to Hel. If they had been good people, they would just mill about in this gloomy place for the rest of time, but if they had been bad, especially if they had been oathbreakers, murderers and adulterers, they would suffer all kinds of torture for all eternity. Or at least until Ragnarök. Ragnarök was the end of time in Old Norse mythology. During Ragnarök, the forces of evil will set out from Hel on a large ship built from the nails of the dead. This is why Viking Age Scandinavians always made sure to keep their nails short. They didn't want to provide building material to this ship. The ship would sail to Asgard, where the gods would meet them in battle. This battle is what all those fallen heroes in Valhalla kept training for. This epic battle will end with basically everyone dying, except a few lucky gods and humans, who will emerge from the carnage to pick up the pieces and create a new and better world. There are so many more details to this myth, and so many other myths, but there really isn't time to get into all of that. But if you'd like to learn more about the Old Norse mythology, feel free to check out my book called Viking Mythology on Amazon. I'll include a link in the description to this episode on the website as well as on Facebook and on Twitter. Next time, we'll look at how, when, and why the Scandinavians ditched their old gods in favor of the newcomer Jesus and his father, who were so popular on the continent. There were not only religious reasons for the Christianization of Scandinavia, but also, and in some cases primarily, political and economic incentives to switch to the new faith. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please recommend it to all and sundry. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review, and perhaps some stars, wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners, and to motivate me to go on producing the show. And if you didn't like it, why are you still listening? We're 19 episodes in by now, it's not going to improve much. So stop torturing yourself and go do something you enjoy more. Life is short. 
But if you do want more, I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If Twitter is more your thing, then you can follow me and send messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.